This is Multinew Media. Happy 2018, everyone. We're already two weeks into the year. Two down, 50 to go. I hope this year is already looking to be both fulfilling and prosperous for you. Now, we're getting a bit of a late start this year because there were some production issues that impacted the show in late 2017, and I didn't want them to carry over into our time together now here in year four of the show. If you're just joining us for the first time, though, I'm Chase Raz, a university instructor at Full Sail University in the field of business technology, as well as some courses in marketing. I have a part-time business, RCR Business Ventures, that provides consulting and corporate training. Excel is currently my number one topic, but I'm starting to see a shift in this a bit, uh, really into two different directions. First, towards more, you know, creative software, business creative, productivity creative, um, arts, design, that type of stuff, video, but also towards cloud-based topics. And to follow up for a moment, the business ventures part of RCR Business Ventures also implies that we spin up our own operations in addition to consulting and training. And speaking of RCR's own operations, that's exactly where we come back to multi-new media. So welcome. Think about this for a moment. The whole internet and technology thing. It's been very good to me, as you can tell from my career that I've just talked about. It's also been good for each and every one of you, I'm sure. Our careers and even our personal lives are built heavily upon this technological infrastructure that's been built within the past several decades. But it always seems as if the infrastructure is under attack, as if we personally and professionally within our businesses are under attack. My guest today is here to help us explore and understand this reality of information security. So let me provide him with a proper introduction. Duncan McElhinney is an information security evangelist, and he's a six-time recipient of a Microsoft MVP award. He's a member of ISA International, ISACA, ISC Squared, CompTIA, and FBI InfraGuard. He writes on cybersecurity topics for books, magazines, websites, and industry publications. He speaks on the topic of cybersecurity as well. And get this, Duncan is so dedicated to the field that his Twitter handle is at InfoSecWar. And his website is WindowsSecurity.tips. Duncan, welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing excellent. And yourself? <laughs> Wonderful. It's, um, it's you know, I'm, I'm happy to be here in 2018. But I'm a little bit scared because almost the entire start of this year, there's been a lot of bad security news in even the mainstream press. So I'm a little bit scared of what we're going to be talking about today to some degree. Absolutely. It hasn't been a stellar start to the year, to say the least. Yeah. So we give, give me a run through. What all is happening? Is there – I mean I, I know – uh, you know, the thing about all the processors having a potential vulnerability, which for the web developers out there, that should really scare us. It seems like one of the entry points is JavaScript within web browsers. This seems kind of like a weird place to attack a processor. Well, yeah, but unfortunately, that's the case in being able to manipulate this particular vulnerability. So thankfully, uh, both Microsoft and the major browsers on the market were pretty quick to provide patches for this particular vulnerability. But, you know, the reality that this thing affects every major processor that's ever been developed and implemented into <laughs> computer systems for at least the past decade. Yeah. 
you know, it is scary. It, it's one of the attack vectors that unfortunately becomes extremely difficult for businesses to be able to address because it is a physical vulnerability. It's not like when we see a issue with, you know, Microsoft Windows 10 or the Adobe Flash Player, you know, those we can get patches for, deploy very quickly and address the issue. But what happens when you're a business with 500 or 5,000 users and you have this vulnerability that exists in all of those systems and the only way to fix it is to have a processor that does not have this particular vulnerability. Yeah, and that becomes extremely challenging. And, and we're talking about the Spectre and Meltdown, the combination of those two uh, security vulnerabilities. And like you said, the, what's, what's being said out there is that all processors, for the most part, are impacted by either both parts of this, Spectre and Meltdown, or by one. And so, you know, it looks like AMD may be sitting in the best position, only being impacted by half of this equation. But still, being impacted by half of the equation, you're only as strong as your weakest link, right? Agreed. So that that is um. So I hope everybody's paying attention to that out there. Uh, just before we get into our our topics, we would normally move into since this is such a topical um, uh, story right now. Is there anything that the average business should be doing to mitigate this threat? When you know we're talking about a business that may have anywhere from five to a hundred employees, but may not have um you know some type of sizable dedicated IT. Uh, for those organizations, you know, if you're talking truly a small business operation that maybe only has 10, 25 computers, you know, making sure that you have the appropriate Windows update settings applied. And typically for those kinds of organizations, I would just say turn them on for automatic updates, you know, for download and install. Uh, it, it may mean that you're getting an update deployed at a particularly inconvenient time, but at least those updates are being applied as soon as possible. If you don't want to go that route, at least get the notifications automatically download, and then you can install those updates at a time that is more convenient for you. But at least get the notification, the alerts that those updates are available and that they should be applied. So for these particular two vulnerabilities, again, Microsoft, Chrome, Firefox, even Apple iOS, you know, for iPhone, has released updates to address this particular vulnerability. So make sure that those are applied as quickly as possible. Yeah, so go out, get those updates. Uh, you know, and I'm glad you say that. I, I really love hearing that from an expert such as yourself because... I know I'll be in corporate trainings or I'll be in front of students and my updates, uh, the little prompt and reminders will pop up. And, you know, some people look at me like I should be embarrassed for that. I'm thinking, no, it's it's the computer reminding me to do my job. It'd be embarrassing if I didn't listen to it, if I didn't say, OK, let's go ahead and schedule this, even though I'm in front of 50 people right now. Um, so I, I love hearing that. And people think of it as this embarrassing thing of. Oh, the airport terminal just said it needed an update. Now, I view it as a very good thing. It's saying, look, I'm, I'm, I'm smart enough as a system to remind you, you need to take care of this. Absolutely. And you said as an educational uh, opportunity with those students to say, hey, you know, 
I got updates to be applied. You probably do as well. Make sure that you check for updates when you get back or, you know, what have you. Yeah. So, so thanks for, for indulging me on that tangent as we start. Duncan, I, I normally really like to ask people to start with this. Um, would you take a few moments and describe, I gave an introduction for you, but would you maybe put these things in your own words? Who, who are you? How can, how should we be thinking of you? And, and, and if we want to get to know you, what, what's the information that makes you, you? Uh, okay. Well, well, not uh, to put you on the spot. Put me on the spot there. <laughs> Uh, so basically, I have a very targeted and focused background. I've spent the past two decades dealing with enterprise management and security and just really kind of stumbled into it uh, almost by accident as part of a project that I was involved in for a large uh, regional bank back in 1997, I want to say. And it, it brought me into the enterprise management space. And from there, of course, when you're dealing with those kinds of environments, large scale corporations and, and having to help them manage their environments, obviously security is part of that. And my role just kind of evolved over the years into more cybersecurity focus. So today that is my, my job, my role, my passion, but I'm very involved at the community level, I love supporting user groups and going out and, you know, talking with folks that are really in the trenches on a day-to-day basis, dealing with a lot of these challenges and helping them understand some of the things that they can do to help improve their security posture and, you know, ultimately add value back to the organization as a result. So, um, yeah, that's kind of me in a nutshell. I do a lot of writing, a lot of you know, these types of podcasts, webinars, uh, conference presentations. I'm constantly on the road about 30, 40 weeks of the year. But, you know, it's something, like I said, that I'm very passionate about. And I love being in front of those audiences and seeing the light bulbs go off and, you know, helping them, you know, just do more with less, so to speak. Well, I, I love the evangelism part of that. And that's that's how I bumped into you. But, you know, I, I think one of the questions that I have and a lot of folks in my shoes that are on the business side of things and we may program, but we're not, you know, we're not programmers necessarily. And we, we're certainly not security experts. What does a lot of the, the day in, day out as a security expert look like? I mean, are you reviewing code, looking at network logs, all of the above? What, what is it? What does it look like when you're performing that work? Well, you know, the infos space or cybersecurity is so widespread. Um, there are so many different roles that could exist for a particular individual, whether if it's threat hunting, uh, being a blue team member, which means you're defensive, or a red team member, which means you're you know, doing pen testing against organizations or penetration testing. Um, you know, that's kind of the ethical hacking, so to speak, where someone's been contracted to do that kind of work. Uh, you, you know, there's just a whole mirage of, of different things that fall into information security. My particular role is vulnerability management, right? So making sure organizations have the defensive mechanisms in place to be able to address the day-to-day vulnerabilities. And when 
I'm saying day-to-day vulnerabilities. I mean, we're seeing on average over 100,000 different pieces of malware every single day that get introduced into you know the the interwebs. Wow. So it's a constant struggle and a lot of organizations if you just look at the monthly Microsoft updates that get rolled out every second Tuesday by the time organizations can actually go through the whole validation testing, pilot deployment, production deployment, guess what? The next you know, batch of updates is coming right at them. Take on top of that the third-party products, all the browsers and uh, third-party mm-hmm. plugins to those browsers or um, you know, Flash Player, Java, you know, your Notepad++. With cloud computing and apps today, you know, you can't even have something like a Notepad++, something that's meant to replace the standard Notepad in Windows without having a particular, um, you know, attack space or, or footprint that could be used by malicious actors because now we have all these cloud-connected apps, right? So if you have that cloud connection, that's an open, you know, attack method for these malicious actors to be able to use. So I help organizations be able to have the defensive measures in place to be able to handle all those updates coming in and how to get those applied as quickly and easily as possible. With, you said, 100,000 pieces of malware coming on uh, just observable every day. Are some of these being automatically generated or is that just are there that many people out there that are, are deploying malware for their own, uh, you know, intents and purposes? Yes, <laughs> it's a combination <laughs> of the two. The funny thing is, you know, you've surely heard about ransomware and mm-hmm. the news and everything last year with WannaCry and NotPetya. Yes. Um, you know, we even have ransomware as a service now. So there's literally an app for it. So you can say as some fledgling little script kitty, uh, you know, I, I want my own malware to be able to infect systems and collect Bitcoin as a result. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they utilize a ransomware as a service because they're not skilled enough to write their own code say how much they want to charge for the ransom, how many days they have to, you know, comply, what should happen if they don't, uh, you know, what the threat message should be. And they'll even localize that threat message into various <laughs> languages for you. So and it's, then it's, it's white labeling ransomware, and then your job is simply to promote the distribution of it? Exactly. Wow. And, then, <laughs> oh, wow. and then, they, then they share the profits. <laughs> That is um, okay. I, I don't. So I'm torn on this. And in in undergraduate business school, I remember being asked about drug dealers, and we had a big debate. You know, the, these academic debates. We had one on whether drug dealers were entrepreneurs or whether they're just criminals. And I, I'm having the same dilemma here, because in one sense, that is so market based that it's it's genius and at the same time it's absolutely asinine <laughs> to um uh you know I never knew anything like that existed I I assumed that there were options that you could pay people but uh, ransomware as a service it's so asinine on the front of it but so 
genius if you're in the on the you know wrong side of things. Um, well, where does it's this stuff come hard. from? I mean, are these people sitting here, you know, right next door to me here in Florida? Are these people right next door to you in Texas, or are um, you know where is this stuff coming from primarily? Well, a lot of it does actually originate from the U.S., which is unfortunate and alarming. But then countries like uh, Eastern Europe, you know, Russia, obviously, the Ukraine, Czech Republic, uh, and then, of course, North Korea, China, you know, so. So uh, just, with any of these, are, are there any I mean, I know there are any, but is there a significant portion that are state sponsored or with ransomware specifically? Do we see, you know, private individuals more than anything? Well, as you may have heard in recent weeks in mainstream media that um, both the UK government and the US government have attributed the WannaCry outbreak last May to North Korea ah. uh, as a state-sponsored attack. So, yeah, yeah, that, so that answers that, huh? Yeah, and then equally so, you know, the month following in June of last year, we had the NotPetya outbreak to a much lesser degree than WannaCry. But um, if you look at the schematics behind that one, that almost certainly looks like a Russian attack against the Ukraine just because of the mechanics of how it was facilitated um, and that the attack was against a Ukrainian uh, accounting software package that they injected malicious code into their auto-update server. And then it obviously infected all their customers and then spread from there. So it are these things targeted? Like, did somebody go out and say, we're going to exploit this piece of software because we're trying to get to a particular mm-hmm. demographic? Or do they just look at everything they possibly can and find the security vulnerability and whatever's easiest to break? Uh, uh, well, the primary attack vectors seem to be going against JavaScript primarily. Java runtime environment, secondly, and the browsers, third. Um, so they look for particular vulnerabilities in those because obviously they're, you know, the widespread usage and the inherent vulnerabilities that exist within those solutions. Uh, and because obviously it allows them to be able to spread through the internet versus having to actually hack inside of an organization's network, which takes a significant amount of more resources and capabilities. Hmm. So when, when somebody's deploying this, right, when they're targeting the browser, when they're targeting whatever it is they're targeting, are they doing the same types of, uh, you know, projections and calculations that, that some of us do on the marketing side of business where we sit down and we, we may determine, okay, if I'm going to run an advertising campaign, maybe I expect to have a click through of, you know, 0.5%. Are they sitting down and doing these same types of, uh, types of calculations and saying, if I target a particular, um, piece of code in a particular piece of way that, you know, X percent of people are just going to blow their system away and wipe me off the face of their hard drive. Uh, are, are they doing these calculations or is it just kind of um, 
what's the organization behind them? Is it is it very professional or because I know it's skilled, but I'm just wondering if they're running projections and calculations like the the um, the non shady side of, of business. Well, let me back up to what we were talking about earlier with our. Uh, let's just call it unethical entrepreneurs, right? Okay. okay. So hacking today is really turning into uh, legitimate business operations, almost like the mafia, right? Okay. A lot of these hacking organizations actually have structures. They have offices. They have you know comp plans, etc., as well as support if they are one of these ransomware as a service kind of solutions. But absolutely, they do have to do the metrics because, and now I'm really about to scare you. I'm already scared. One of the attack vectors that exists today is what's called a drive-by download Mm -hmm. or drive-by infection. It utilizes, let's say, a vulnerability that exists in Flash Player version 24, right? And knowing that vulnerability exists and the potential for how many installations of version 24 exist in the world and how many potential users they can reach, they will take this malicious code that is based on JavaScript and inject it into legitimate websites. And when I say legitimate, I'm talking things like Washington Post, Rudders, um, you know, credible websites that have ad networks. Mm-hmm. Now, with this malicious code that takes advantage of a JavaScript vulnerability, or excuse me, not a JavaScript vulnerability, but a Flash Player vulnerability using JavaScript, all that has to happen is an innocent user goes to a legitimate website, that ad gets displayed, and without the user even clicking on the ad, hovering over it, doing anything, in the background, that JavaScript has already run on the system, downloaded the payload for that particular malware, sometimes injecting it directly into memory. And when I say that, that means it's not being written to the computer's hard disk. It's running inside of memory. Now, the reason why that is key is because traditional antivirus solutions cannot pick up on it because it hasn't been written to disk. There's no disk I.O. There's no mm-hmm. file. So there's no signature that the antivirus engine knows about and knows, hey, this is malicious you know, file. Let's quarantine it, delete it, whatever. So it's running directly out of memory, and next thing you know, 30 seconds later, you're looking at a ransom mm-hmm. note on that system. Ah, So, so f- going back to your point about metrics and ROI, yeah, absolutely. They're looking at how much are we going to spend on this ad network and how much do we anticipate being able to get back in Bitcoin payments for the ransom. Wow. I have to imagine as somebody who – as somebody who wipes his system anytime there's, you know, um, this type of anytime there's anything obvious, right? I do try to run software and make sure I'm protected. That's no challenge in the world. I'm I'm just as vulnerable as anybody else. 
But, uh, you know, as somebody who when I'm when I if I ever get ransomware and I have uh, more than a handful of times in the past, I just wipe my system and I'm, I'm almost wondering who is out there that is actually not just doing that. I mean, are, are is this a business thing? Are businesses uh, more prone to ransomware or are individuals, are they targeting the elderly? Do you have metrics on who's most susceptible to actually falling prey to this other than data loss? Well, these malicious actors do facilitate targeted campaigns. And unfortunately, this is one of the things that frankly pisses me off. Um, if you look at WannaCry and uh-huh. the initial outbreak, you know, look at the national health system of the UK, of the UK yeah. that was attacked. You know, 48 of their uh, hospitals were impacted by this. 19,000 surgeries and procedures that had to be postponed, delayed, um, because they were not able to intake these patients. They mm-hmm. couldn't do things like allergic reactions to medicines for um, anesthetics, et cetera. You know, but healthcare is definitely one of the vertical markets that is aggressively targeted by these malicious actors because they know the criticality of those systems. And being able to get them back online as quickly as possible means having to pay that ransom versus scrambling to see if they have backups, trying to, you know, restore those systems or using any of the potential decryption tools that may exist for that particular uh, malware. Well, with cloud computing and you you mentioned uh, cloud computing sort of within that answer and, and then previously with it you know, becoming more and more common, even in enterprise as, as, you know, on-prem servers, there's, we're still there. There's still uh, large uh, deployments of them, but as we kind of move to the cloud, does that open up the ability to be more or less secure? Does the risk just shift? Um, because, you know, I, I, I yeah, no, I, I just kind of wonder what the cloud does to this. If they're, um, who it benefits, you know, Cloud computing, it, it is not a transfer of risk. It is simply a, a different means of being able to store data, being able to provide services, etc. But, you know, you're still talking about having to protect the data, the network, and those computer systems. Uh, if you just do a Google search of Amazon S3 buckets, exposed mm-hmm. you know you can see very quickly how many times organizations have had misconfigured cloud services that have exposed them to one or more vulnerabilities so you still have to have a proper security architecture in place you have to be using things like https or a vpn to be able to Uh, move that kind of sensitive data between on-prem and the cloud. Uh, And and you need to make sure that your cloud service provider has the right security controls in place, not only for protecting you from external threats, but also being sure that there's no internal threats that could potentially take advantage of 
those services or data repositories. It almost makes me wonder why, you know, as somebody who uses the Amazon cloud and much less frequently Microsoft's Azure, I, I almost wonder why, I mean, in the documentation, I'm sure it's there, but it's not really prominently mentioned that you should probably, for security, use a VPN um, for the transfer of the files. I just, I almost wonder what type, not not that there's a transfer of risk necessarily, but the transfer of liability in this case, at what point does Amazon or Microsoft or Rackspace or anyone else come on and say, we're going to require you to use some type of VPN software or do, you know, SSH tunneling or something else? I don't have a good answer for you there. You know, that's just kind of their policy, right? But I'm with you. I sit here and see all these S3 bucket exposures. And, you know, we just had one uh, last week that had 68 gigs worth of data just sitting out there. Mm. And again, it's just because of misconfiguration and not enough attention to detail as it pertains to securing those environments. Now, is this from somebody taking – so an S3 bucket, if anyone doesn't use cloud services, for Amazon has S3, which is something – what is it? Scalable storage or – Yeah, it's something like that. <laughs> three, three S is whatever it is. So S3. And are are these people simply not marking their, their files as private – are we talking about resource rights, meaning, you know, they accidentally mark something as public or is there another vulnerability that the average, you know, brand new only deals with web host, you know, me, the me's of the world. Yeah. I only deal with traditional web hosting and I've moved into the cloud. Is there something we're doing wrong to create those exploits for others or or is it just a, uh, you know, a setting issue? It, it is human error. Mm. And, and unfortunately, a lot of times the uh, the means of hackers being able to get to internal networks, get to storage, get to uh, computer systems is because of human error and misconfiguration. And I've always I've always heard that. And um, I've always heard that the number one way to attack a business's information is through social engineering. Is that Absolutely. is that still true? Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I, I wrote an article on my windowssecurity.tips about how your social profiles help hackers and give a illustration of basically using data from LinkedIn to be able to fish a user into giving up details. And, you know, it, it's so easy from a social engineering perspective to be able to use things from LinkedIn, from Twitter, Facebook, to be able to not only identify a person within a particular organization, if I'm trying to spearfish, but also, you know, uh, when you get to kind of the trench level, you know, sysadmins, network admins, even sometimes infosec persons, love to be able to tout what kind of skills they have and, you know, being able to put that on their LinkedIn profile. And all that does is tell me, hey, you know, if this guy's just passed a Veeam certification or, uh, you know, uh, Oracle 12, whatever cert, or they've got that skill on their LinkedIn profile, that's telling me that that organization probably has those products 
mm-hmm. in the environment. And now I can start to research potential mm-hmm. vulnerabilities for those particular products and see if there's a way for me to get an in to be able to drop my payload and then from there be able to scale out um, and have some lateral movements to be able to infect other systems within their environment or gain additional privilege levels by hopping from one system to the next, you know, hashing or capturing their um, hashed credentials and being able to replicate that to be able to eventually get domain admin access. Now, this may show my complete ignorance in the field, but it's something that I grapple with. And when I'm interfacing with students or when I'm interfacing with clients, I don't always know how to provide an answer. So when I'm teaching Microsoft Excel or any other of the um, office suite, we talk about how to prepare your files for communication. So you rip out the the path to the printer and the secure print code and all of those things. And when we're talking about, you know, transferring files to and from a website, we're talking about uh, VPN and, and, and a, using HTTPS. Now, I guess one of my questions related to this ignorance of mine has been, are people, is there the ability for the regular Joe, the regular person um, to hide in plain sight? Because there's such a small target. Is anyone really trying to pick up and just say, all right, let me find every single exposed Excel file that I can. And and so what if it's for, you know, Jane's auto repair shop? Is that a legitimate threat or or is it possible to be so far under the radar that you just don't rate? Unfortunately, anybody is susceptible And the reason I say that, if you look at things like the Equifax breach, the Yahoo breach, um, you know, we have literally hundreds of millions of records of personally identifiable information that exist on the dark web. And those databases, not only do they exist for the individual breaches, but we also have these mega databases of all the breaches combined. So you could literally have close to a billion records that, you know, some malicious actor could use in a phishing campaign to just blast email, you know, a hundred million people with this phishing email and attempting to gain access to those systems or encrypt them with ransomware or whatever. Uh, so yes, everybody is susceptible. Nobody is too small of a target when it comes to, you know, these malicious actors and what they're trying to do. Yeah, that, that, um, (laughs) I'm sort of sitting here petrified at the moment because it seems to be such a larger issue than we even, I mean, we report it as if it's this major issue and as we should, but it seems to be even larger. And one of the big concerns I have personally is, and I don't mean to sound cynical or anything like that, but you know, being in business, um, I realize this problem isn't going away. We're not going to solve this. We're not going to cure this problem. And, And the reason I know that uh, or at least my speculation lets me believe I know that, is because I saw one of uh, one of my credit providers that I'm not utilizing. I just have a line with them, and I got a um, a mailing from them, and it was it 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 was quite um, concerning. It was that for a fee, they would scour the dark web for me to make sure my records weren't there. 
And my first thought was, you're one of my financial providers, my uh, financial institutions. That's your job. I shouldn't have to pay for that. When I realized that there was um, even, you know, you don't have to be black hat. You don't even have to be gray hat. There is a viable economy because of these security threats. I sort of had this sinking feeling in my chest that all business people, uh, you know, can get when they see the writing on the wall in this way. And I thought this problem is never going to be cleared up for those reasons. Do you get the same sentiment or do you get that people are legitimately trying to end the threat as much as possible? Uh, that's a <laughs> loaded question. Sorry. Yeah, it is kind of a loaded question. Uh, yeah, you know, there's multiple providers out there that will happily charge you 10 bucks a month to scour the dark web, so to speak, looking for your name, your email address, your physical address, any of those kinds of details and alert you to it. That's not going to fix the problem. I don't know that there is a good fix. Uh, it, It is not going to go away. It is not going to get better. It will only get worse as time and technology evolves. The only thing we can do is have the right uh, preventive measures and incident response plan in place in the event that we are attacked. And I think that sounds so dismal in a sense that it sets a stage for my last two questions for you. And and that's a good thing, actually, because these last two questions are my largest questions for you. So what I'll do is I'll ask them and then I'll just kind of slink into the background so that you can answer them however you see fit and, and with ever um, depth of an answer you, you see fit as well. So let's turn our attention to the average business. This could be, you know, a, a mom and pop dry cleaner. This could be a 250 employee uh, creative shop, but the average business coffee shop physical online retailer, whatever the case is, what should they be doing that they often are not doing or simply don't know or haven't been told to do? Uh, As it pertains to addressing these threats, uh, I would say the first thing is ensuring that they have solid backup strategies in place. Um, I, I don't care if you're that corner coffee shop with only three computer systems or like you said that 250 person creative studio you have to have good backups you have to test those backups on a regular basis if you don't don't even bother backing up to begin with right but have those backups and there is a rule uh three two one have at least three copies of your backups in two different locations and one of those off-site. That way, if you do fall victim to some ransomware attack, at least you have good backups uh, to be able to resort to versus paying the ransom. And I say with complete belief, um, you should never have to or pay the ransom. And there's several reasons for that. Number one, you have absolutely no guarantee that you're going to get the decryption key from these malicious actors. They're criminals. They're not the most ethical people out there. All right. So there's 
nothing stopping them from taking your money and running. Secondly, there's no guarantee that they're not going to come back over the top and say, hey, you know, we just got you to pay us 500 in Bitcoin. Now we're going to take a thousand to be able to give you your decryption key. And then lastly, you never know where those Bitcoin payments and the funds are actually going to. There are criminal organizations behind some of these ransomware attacks. They're involved in things like drug trafficking, human trafficking, child sex trade. And that is not where I'm going to put a single dime of my money. So make sure you have backups in place to be able to recover from those incidents should they take place. Next is, you know, make sure you have a good AV product on every one of your systems. Traditional AV will help with the signature-based, definition-based um, malwares and viruses that exist today. Now, those do tend to run a little bit behind because obviously they need to know about that particular attack vector, know the signatures um, and hashes of these files and be able to have a means of uh, stopping them, deleting them, quarantining them, what have you. So you need to have that just as a core basis. And then on top of that, using something like a next-gen anti-malware uh, solution that is behavioral-based. And that will help with some of this stuff that I was talking about earlier with things like drive-by infections, uh, ransomware, zero-day vulnerabilities, those kinds of things, because it operates on behavior patterns and can stop something in its tracks based off of machine learning and artificial intelligence and knowing, hey, this is not right. We're seeing three file renames in the directory within a second. That's probably not okay behavior because that's a typical pattern of encrypting files as part of a ransomware attack, right? Mm -hmm. So make sure you have that. Um, other things, patching. You know, when we talked earlier about the drive-by infections, you know, using a known vulnerability in Flash Player 24, you know, if the latest version of Flash Player is 26, that's what you need on your system because obviously there's going to have been security vulnerabilities that have been addressed in those two releases since whatever you're running on. So if you're not one who's going to go out to the vendor's website and make sure that, you know, you're up to the latest and greatest, then turn on the vendor's auto updates. And that exists for, you know, Flash Player, for Java, for all the browsers. So if you're not going to be diligent enough to stay on top of these security updates, then simply turn on the vendor's auto updates. If you're a larger scale company, you probably want to make sure that you have a patching solution inside of the organization. And Microsoft makes all their updates available through a product called Windows Server Update Services. It's completely free. 
and it will synchronize with Windows Update, bring those updates into your environment onto that server, and then allow you to distribute those updates in a more controlled fashion to all of your 250 computers. Lastly, like I said uh, earlier, VPN usage, making sure that when you have a system, whether if you're an individual or a small business or even a corporate uh, environment, making sure that every laptop user in the environment has a good VPN service. Uh, avoid the free ones that exist out there because they're, uh, yeah, well, they're going to end up serving you up ads and all this other stuff. You want to have a good paid for VPN service or running your own VPN uh, environment within the organization. Using that every single time you're outside of that corporate network. And, you know, whether if that's a coffee shop, an airport, a hotel, etc., making sure that you have that VPN connection and using it all the time, not just to connect back to the company, but to protect your traffic from potential listeners. Um, same thing with HTTPS, you know, use it every time possible. And for Chrome and I believe Firefox as well. There's an extension that you can use called HTTPS Everywhere that will automatically try to flip you to an HTTPS version of a website if you haven't explicitly gone to it already. Uh, so make sure you're using something like that. And again, that's just to protect yourself and the traffic that is going between you and whatever website or you know cloud service etc that you're using i absolutely love that and i just want to recap for a moment before i ask you my last question because you you mentioned this three two one method for backups you mm -hmm. mentioned um having great antivirus you mentioned having good anti-malware i think that's one people forget about is the anti-malware getting all of your updates and patches taken care of whether you're using that through the you know doing that rather through the first party updates through apple and microsoft and adobe and so on or third party from uh, like a company like yours, Avanti, mm -hmm. who, who offers these solutions. And encryption, making sure you're using the HTTPS version of a website or that you're using a VPN to connect. And um, I, I kind of had a thought in my head of wouldn't that be something if you're using a free VPN for this purpose and they're serving you ads and then that ad network is targeted and you end up as a result of using that free VPN, um, you know, ending up with some malware uh, because you chose to have ads displayed to you. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't actually thought about it like that, but yeah, that would be a little can, that would be a little ironic. And I know just from what I'm hearing on the business side of things, from the marketing discipline, is a lot of these ad networks are under attack right now, um, looking for vulnerabilities to serve. Um, and you mentioned this earlier to be able to serve malware without the user having to do anything except for load a legitimate website. So I, I love that list. Now, my absolute last question here is I have students uh, both at the university and in the corporate world, 
And if they want to know more about information security in general and and learning about whether it's because of the stuff in the news right now and learning how processors and memory and operating systems interact together or whether they're looking more on the code side or just the preventative maintenance, where should someone start? Like where what is the starting point for someone maybe 18 or 58 who wants to get into this? Because I honestly don't know how to answer this question to my students currently. Okay, so I'm going to take that in two parts. One, is it sounded like you know just the general computing, network understanding, memory operations, and then the other kind of how to get into InfoSec. Sure, that works for me. Okay, so for the first part in understanding computing and network and in all that, I would highly recommend doing exactly what I did uh, when I was that age yeah buy a computer case buy a motherboard buy ram buy hard drives and put it together yourself figure it out watch a lot of youtube videos if you have to uh follow blogs like tom's hardware or something and you know get that deep tissue understanding from a hands-on experience i sat there gosh i was I want to say 19 years old when I had my first modem. It it was given to me by a coworker. It was like a 1400 baud modem. And it took me literally probably two months to get that damn thing to work properly. But (laughs) I learned so much in the process. And then I started getting into BBSing. And ended up running my own Wildcat 3.0 BBS back in the day. And learned from that because now I had users dialing into my board and starting to ask me questions. So I had to kind of be the expert while I was still learning myself. Mm -hmm. So that hands-on experience can never be replaced with institutional learning. And I, I hate to say that because I know you're an educator of sorts as well, Mm -hmm. but you have to have that practical hands-on experience to really get to understand. Thankfully to follow on with that, you know, in a couple years following, you know, my, uh, modem ordeal, you know, I did take a programming logic and design course at a community college. And that was so fundamental for the rest of my career because it gave me that basic understanding of programming, logic, and design. Being able to understand routines, breakouts, you know, those kinds of things. And in my particular career, that has been extremely beneficial. But I had to have the background, I had to have the core basics of computing to for that to even make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Now, on the InfoSec side, you know, I, I hear this a lot and I see it in Twitter, I see it in LinkedIn. You know, how do I get into InfoSec? Or I've been in computing for a while and I want to get into InfoSec. How do I make that transition? You know, the first thing I would recommend is do some reading, uh, start to prep for an exam like the CompTIA security plus, 
go through the books, go through those, you know, um, exam simulators, but also utilize some of the free resources that are available to the InfoSec community. One of those is Cybrary.it. That is a free website hosting hundreds of hours of video-based courses around information security on all different aspects, whether if it's pen testing, uh, the CISP or CISSP certification, you name it. There's literally hundreds of hours of video learning available there. Then there's also PeerList. P-E-E-R-L-Y-S-T dot com, which is basically an online community and forum around information technology. There's also a document repository where a lot of people um, will post their findings, uh, threat research, uh, vulnerability exposures. Um, you know, from their threat research, all these kinds of things. And it is just a treasure trove of knowledge. And some of the best in the industry live there and share their experience, share their findings. Um, so I'd highly recommend that as well. And then, of course, you know, just like we were able to bump into each other on Twitter, I hate to say it, I, I hated Twitter for so many years. <laughs> Everybody did. <laughs> but uh, the reality is InfoSec lives on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you just pull up my Twitter handle and then look at who I follow, those are some of the best in this industry. And they they exist across all the different planes of information security and cybersecurity. Well, Duncan, I, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on. I think everybody has some food for thought, whether they're a business owner or a student or just somebody interested in IT. And uh, I want to end with this. Let's just go ahead and give one more round, Duncan, of if you want to, if there's anything you want to promote, feel free. Or if you just want to let people know how they can get in touch with you. I know your website is windowssecurity.tips. And your Twitter handle is InfoSecWar. But anything else you want to let people know, feel free and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll conclude. Uh, actually, you know, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, they can reach me both on the website or through my Twitter handle. I do have open messages uh, for this exact reason. Wonderful. Well, Duncan, thank you so much for joining me. And I, I really appreciate the information. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a long time since I've said anything substantive after the show. In this case, however, I want to encourage you to reach out to Duncan with your questions and information security requests. Go to Twitter right now and message him to see how we can help your business stay secure and defend your valuable information. Again, on Twitter, Duncan is handle, InfoSecWar. That's I-N-F-O-S-E-C-W-A-R. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, take care.